Good evening. It is so good to be together. What beautiful singing. If you would be open your Bibles to Isaiah 40, we won't have slides tonight, so reach for a Bible or grab one in the pew there if you need it. And the Bibles in the pew will be 638. 638. And uh, we'll look forward to a study of God's Word together. Before we get into that, we want to mention uh, a farewell to Brother Neil Clark. Brother Neil Clark is going to be moving to Franklin uh, to be closer to his son. And he's been with us for several years. And if we all could uh, speak a good name and a good word for Jesus on a daily and a weekly basis like Brother Neil Clark, uh, this community in Mount Juliet would be a better place. Uh, he constantly, constantly... Uh, let's his light shine. And we love him dearly, and we appreciate uh, the opportunity that we've had to worship and to serve God together. And, uh, of course, we wish you, Brother Neil, the very best in your move to Franklin. I was told that this morning I, I spoke a little bit fast. There were a lot of things I wanted to cover, and so right before I walked in here, I cut out at least the last third of the sermon, and then when I got up and was preaching, I realized that there were two other big points that I had to cut out, and, and of course, the whole time, I'm just wanting to cram it all in there, and so I apologize if it's a little fast, but what we will do tonight is we're going to pick up those points that were left out, and then that last third that was cut out even before I started, and, and I hope that it's of a benefit to you. It's just one of those passages that the more I studied it, especially with our theme that we're going to be looking for, looking into for an entire quarter, I just couldn't help uh, but, but see so many things that would help us. Not that these three points, since we're kind of picking up in different parts of the chapter to kind of clean up some things from this morning, if you will, from our study, I want to give you three things that it's not a real pretty, as we talk about like in speaking, where you put a ribbon around it and tie a bow and it's a nice pretty presentation. If you're looking for that tonight, you've come to the wrong place. But I can give you three things that if you're willing to think about them, even though it's not a perfect thread through each one of them, if you can be thinking about the idea of reward, not your reward, but strange enough as it might sound, what is God's reward? So first, we'll start out tonight by looking at reward. What is God's reward? And then second, we need to look at trust. Who do you trust? And then finally, we need to look at waiting. Are you waiting in the right way? And so I'm going to present this lesson uh, kind of upon the, the preface that, that we were here this morning, even though I know some of you were not, and we're glad that you're here tonight, but, but just kind of building on that foundation and we began this morning by asking the questions, what credentials does God have to be your shepherd? Is he worthy? And this chapter lays out so many things to show us how worthy God is to be our shepherd. I'd like for us to go immediately now to 10 and 11, which was where we ended this morning, but there were a few things there in Isaiah 40 that I'd like for us to see in addition. In verse 9, he told them to go up into the high mountain and with a strong voice declare what? Behold, you are God. Can you say that, that he is your God? Or is that your life? Is that a description of of the way, you, is your life that exemplary to, to the people around you? Do they know that the Lord is your shepherd? 
Now with that in mind, he described this Lord almost in like warrior-like terms in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and with his arm shall rule him. And that arm is, is the mighty arm that rules even over nations as we see in other parts of the Bible. Behold, now here it is, his reward is with him. So his reward is with God and his work is before him. So before we get to that reward, I'd like for you to see why is it that this strong hand and this mighty arm blesses us. In other words, when God is looking out to see outside of his flock, all right, he's the shepherd, he has his flock. Is he looking over everybody else to see, hey, are you sinning out there? He doesn't have to do that. Of course they're sinning. All have sinned. Have they been forgiven of their sins? No, they haven't been forgiven of their sins. How do you know that? Because they would be a part of his flock. Listen, God doesn't have to look outside his flock to figure out if, if someone is saved, to figure out if someone's a sinner, or to figure out if they're forgiven. Of course they're not saved. Of course they're sinners. Of course they're not forgiven. Why? They're not a part of his flock. And so then we say, well, why would he leave his flock? Let's go over to Exodus, and we made mention of this this morning, and I'd like for you to see a reminder from Exodus, the sixth chapter, where he explained why Pharaoh was going to let the people go, and he explained why he had his mighty hand in the life of the people. Exodus, the sixth chapter, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Now let's skip down to verse 6. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. What's God going to do? I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Why do we need God's outstretched arm? We need an arm that will reach further than his flock, all the way out to us in a need of a Savior and he will rescue us. He will redeem us. Now hang on to that thought, and we're going to make another point and then tie the two together with a mental image. So we go back now to Isaiah, the 40th chapter, to what we were reading in verse 10 about his arm and his hand. But notice that last part again of verse 10. Behold, his reward is with him. Now, if we talk about a reward that we receive from God, it has to be by grace. None of us have merited a reward from God. But now when God receives a reward, He deserves it. He's purchased it. He's paid for it. What reward has God purchased? What is a reward to God? When you do something and, and, and you think, well, my reward is fill in the blank. What is it? Ladies, a day out shopping? What is it, guys? Your reward is a steak at Ruth Chris? That's a big reward. What, what, is, what is a reward? What, what, what's your reward? Well, we can imagine things as our reward, but when God says, oh, I have rewards, 
I have rewards for me. God, what's your reward? The next verse paints a picture of God's reward. It's bringing a sheep in. It's having a lamb up close to his chest. God's reward is the redeemed. Those that are saved are God's reward. And what a beautiful description. Did he pay for it? Absolutely he paid for it. John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's why in 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, at the end of the chapter, he talks about us being bought with a price. That's why in Acts 20 and 28, he talks about the church that was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. What is he saying over and over throughout all the scriptures? His people are his people, not because one day they just wandered through a corral and said, well, would you look at here? I didn't know, but I brought myself into God's fold. Nobody can bring their self into God's fold. We have to go out and be... Or never, I mean, I said that. God has to go out and rescue us. God has to go out and redeem us. It has to be His strong hand, His outreached arm that brings us in. Remember we said we put two things together here. That hand, that arm, and the reward. And we're not going to turn there for time's sake, but you probably know the passage pretty well. Luke, the 15th chapter. What's the first story of the three stories? You remember the shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd. You remember the shepherd that had a hundred sheep? And remember one sheep left the fold. And one sheep went out on its own. And you remember what we're taught there that a shepherd should do, and which, by the way, this is why later on in this series of lessons on Sunday morning in your Bible classes, that's why we're going to have a lesson about us being shepherds. And that's what Luke 15 is talking about, but I want you to see it here as an example of what God does. What does a good shepherd do? When a good shepherd knows that a sheep is out lost, a good shepherd leaves the ninety and nine and reaches that mighty arm out to the lost. And you remember in Luke 15? Puts it on his shoulders, and he brings that sheep back. That's exactly what 10 and 11 are talking about, what God has done for us. Brethren, it ought to send cold chills down our spine to think that God loves you so much that to have the opportunity to save you, he describes it as his reward. It cost him the blood of his son, and he still says it was a reward. I can't hardly imagine that much love. If I gave the blood of my son to save you, I would have a hard time saying that you were a reward. I would be almost tempted to call you a curse. How much does God love us to redeem us at the cost that he paid is amazing. In the Bible class that I was in this morning, John Michael was teaching. And he really brought together several of the things that he was teaching under the umbrella of it's an issue of trust. We will allow the Lord to be our shepherd if we trust him.
Isn't that so true? From the Garden of Eden, mankind's problem has been we have a hard time trusting God. And if we trust Him, He'll be our shepherd. And if we don't trust Him, we'll start backing away from Him. Isn't it amazing that from where we're reading right here, picking up at verse 12 and going at least through 26, that is the reason all of those verses are in place. Isaiah, as we study this morning, you know the passage. Let me comfort you, one and two. Let me tell you about the, the way that's been prepared for you, three, four, and five. Let me tell you about my word endures. See, that's starting to get on the trust factor right there. I've said it, so you ought to trust me. Let me tell you who I am. I'm a warrior with a strong hand and a mighty arm. Let me, let me tell you about the gentleness and the relationship that I want to have. I want to bring you in. I want to be your shepherd. And then that could leave us saying, but God... I want to trust you. But God, is it asking too much for you to... Is it asking too much for you to just give us some proof? God, you know we're frail. And you know that, that we're not born all-knowing. So God, could you be patient enough with us to let us say, we need just a little more proof, God. And he says, no problem. I can give you a series of either questions or facts. And you can see once we get done with this, if I'm worthy of you trusting. Which, by the way, if, if you enjoy studying the book of Job, this is exactly what God does to Job beginning at the 38th chapter, which is a rich study. Here is a miniature version of those chapters that he gave to Job because Job had a lot of questions, as you remember that story, a lot of losses and a lot of questions. And God did not come to say, I will answer all your questions, but he did come down to Job to say, I can help you at least trust me. Does that make sense? If you really, really trust somebody, let's just say they're going to plan a vacation for you. Do you trust them? If you trusted them, you wouldn't ask them a lot of questions. If they said, hey, we need to leave at 4.30 in the morning, you'd say, okay, great. Now, if you didn't trust them, you'd be like, I'm not leaving at 4.30 in the morning until you tell me what we're doing. Well, how many times do we treat God like that? God asks us to do something. We say, God, you've got to make it make sense to me or I, I'm not going to do it. You see, it's an issue of trust. So here we go. Let's look at just some of this. Of course, we can't study every verse from 12 to 26 here. But, but notice this. Can we trust God? He says in 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated, you mathematicians, calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. I wonder how many people here have weighed the mountains in a scale and the hills in a balance. This is those questions. God says, you know, there was a day that I was going to create the earth and I had to decide how much water to put on the earth. Were any of you there to help measure out how much water that we ought to put on the earth so that we don't flood all the land and yet so we have enough water that, that all the places that need to have water is full? How, how many of you were there at that point helping determine how much water ought to be on the earth? Or, or what, about, what about dust particles? We want to make sure that all the deserts have all the sand that they need. We need to make sure that all the fields have all the dirt that they need for agriculture. Who, who was there to help weigh out how much dirt needs to be? Who weighed the, the mountains? Who weighed the mountains where, where God said, I want Mount Everest to be the tallest peak on earth? 
He said, well, God, I tell you what, if he's going to be the tallest one, you're going to have to have this many billions and trillions tons of rock. Was, was anybody there? He said, that sounds kind of ridiculous. That's not ridiculous. God did it. What's ridiculous is seeing it and not believing that God did it. He can make Mount Everest. He can put the perfect amount of water in the Pacific Ocean. Do you trust Him? If we need more proof, very sobering in 13, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as His counselor has taught Him? With whom did He take counsel and who instructed Him? And taught him in the path of justice. Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? You know, you don't have to read this book long to realize that the wisdom in this book is amazing. If this book was simply written by men, you know what would be our natural question? Who taught those men? That's amazing. What schools did they go to? Do you remember what staggered the mind? of the rabbis who were highly trained whenever Peter and other fishermen began to speak the words of wisdom from God? They wanted to know how could these men that had not been trained be speaking such wisdom because their wisdom came from God. But now we ask the question that Isaiah presents here. Who trained God? Who sat down and said, God, you're pretty good, but let me give you some other advice that you probably will need about justice. Let me give you a little bit more wisdom that you probably need in the area of dealing with people. That, that's ridiculous. Do you trust Him? All-knowing. There has never been a creature on this earth that has ever been able to sit down and teach God something. Ever. No matter what advancements will be made over the next 100 years, and some in this room will be the ones contributing to those advancements, they will never teach God something. Do you trust Him? Brethren, we're not saying something shallow when we say, the Lord is my shepherd. We can say it with confidence. We, as a sheep, can place our life in His hands and our life will have never been in greater and better hands. To make one more point, look at 15 uh, under this. Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, He lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. And he continues on with this type of writing. But for time's sake, just go back to that thought of he looks as a nation, as a what? Ding. Just a drop in the bucket. Remember the setting here. Lord, you, you mean to tell me that, that Jerusalem might, might fall? This great city could never fall. Oh, yeah. You're just a drop. Who... Who's going to come? The 
great mighty Babylon. Oh, I can raise them up, but it's no problem. A few years from now, I'm going to bring them down. Dink. Just a drop in the bucket. Brethren, America is a drop in the bucket. The one that controls the outcome of that drop is the same who has controlled the rise and the fall of all nations. Can you trust Him? There's nobody else to trust but Him. So where does that leave us? That leaves us as we drop down to 31. And there's a setup to this that we will not take the time, but starting back in 28, 29, and 30, and, and we see this, that, that in, in, in a sense, if we want to place this, of course, in the context that it's written, keep in mind, this is about Judah being taken captive 70 years later, being able to return. And the question is, are individuals going to put their faith and their hope in that, and are they going to go back to God during that time of captivity? And if so, what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to do what any of us have to do. And that is, wait upon the Lord. Now that may not be the most natural way that we describe faithfulness, but a part of faithfulness is waiting upon the Lord. And so notice this, in 31, But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I've read this from many commentaries this week. And it's kind of discouraging how many different messages you get and you almost, you almost get the feeling that you're, you're trying to hit a moving target. Can I just simplify it to some things that we know? What does he mean when he says, wait upon the Lord? The word wait is a little bit of an unusual word in the Hebrew in the sense that it does bring the thought of waiting like we sometimes think of waiting, but it also is a word that carries with it in its original context the idea of twisting cords or fibers together. And so in one sense, it's like the idea of having a lifeline. In other words, I'm going to grab the lifeline of God and I'm not going to go anywhere else. Someone says, you mean to tell me you're going to wait wherever he takes you? Yes. Someone says, come this way. No, I'm waiting right here. And Satan says, no, go this way. No, I'm waiting right here. And in a sense, that's probably what he's talking about. It's the idea that I'm going to wait upon the Lord. What's it going to be like in captivity? I don't know. Well, what are you going to do? God's will. I'm going to wait on the Lord. If you're in middle school, what's it going to be like in high school? I don't know, but I'm going to wait on the Lord. What are you going to do Monday at work? I don't know everything I'm going to do, but I'm going to live for the Lord. What are you going to do this week? I don't know everything this week is going to bring. An audience this size, somebody's probably going to get some pretty bad news this week. What are you going to do with it? I don't know, but I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to do God's will no matter what happens in my life, I'm going to do God's will. There are times in our life where we feel like we're flying like on eagle's wings. 
There are times in life where we feel like we're running. Just got a lot of energy and can just go, go, go. And there are times in life when we're doing real good just to stay at a steady walk. It's interesting that in this passage, God does not exalt one above the other. He just simply says to the person that's walking, don't faint. He says to the one that's running, don't grow weary. And the one that's flying, mount up like eagles wing. So what's he saying? In life, you may be going through a difficult time, and it may be that the very best you can do right now is to just hang on to that lifeline and keep walking. God will give you the strength to not stop walking. Maybe you're running spiritually right now. God will give you the strength to not grow weary and turn loose of the rope. Maybe you're flying. You keep flying with God. You see, the point seems to be it's so much more important for us to wait than whether or not we're walking or running or flying. The spark in the pan. How many times have we seen it? Brings a lump to my throat to think about how many people I've baptized into Christ that were on fire for about two months. And they went from flying to running to walking to completely out in a short amount of time. Listen, brethren. God is looking for sheep that are willing to say, the Lord is my shepherd for a lifetime. I'm not going anywhere. I am God's reward. I trust Him. He doesn't have to explain everything to me. I trust Him. And I'm holding on to that rope. And if I'm walking... It's a good walk with God. If I'm running, it's a good run with God. And if I'm flying, it's a great flight with God. But most important, I will not turn loose of my shepherd. I was really convicted in how much God loves us. I don't guess we can even imagine how much He really loves us. And with that, it convicts you how much we must hurt God sometimes when we stop walking or we turn our back and turn loose of the rope and walk away from Him. And tonight, I hope from our study today that you believe that God is worthy God is worthy of our life. He, he is worthy to be our shepherd. He is worthy of our love. I hope you'll be praying about this entire series. I hope we will come to know God better. 
And I hope we will come to love God's people more. What can we do for you tonight? If you need to be immersed into Christ, or if you need to be restored, or if you're just feeling worn out and you just need the prayers of people that love you, you've come to a good place. If we can help you in any way,